The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning. I'm Mike. I work with the youth here at Westway. Um, And so sometimes I rely on little gimmicks to keep people's attention. So I'm going to do that right now. I have to ask the science teachers in the room to just give me a little bit of leeway because I'm not going to be a scientist right now. I'm going to use the term entropy in a very non-scientific way. So don't hold this against me, please. Um, But I want to introduce you to my friend entropy. And I don't know if I should use the term friend really, but entropy just kind of follows me around everywhere I go. Um, and I want to I want to kind of demonstrate a little bit. Tyler, could you help me for just a second? You can stay right there. I just needed you to catch this, okay? It's a bag of marshmallows. I actually got it to him. That's good. Okay. So so Tyler, you just look at that a little bit. It's marshmallows, right? Like these people back there can't see. Um, you want to throw it back to me? Good job. Okay. So you can throw like forty marshmallows, and they all stay together. That's pretty impressive. Um, So here's the thing, though. Entropy um, kind of affects everything. And it is just sort of, well, you might have heard of of Isaac Newton. He has some laws of physics that we talk about. You might have heard of the laws of thermodynamics. I know for some of you this is kind of hurting because you go back a long way to high school physics class maybe. Um, some of you, it hurts because you're in there now and you're having to explain these things. Um, so, Newton said that an object at rest is going to stay at rest and an object in motion is going to stay in motion unless it's acted on by some other force. So, when I throw a bag of marshmallows at Tyler, or to Tyler, it's going to go that direction that I throw it, unless it's acted on by another force. Well, it is acted on by another force. Gravity, right, sucks it down. So I have to aim a little past Tyler in order for it to drop to Tyler. So, so we did that. Like, the whole bag makes it there is awesome. Really impressive, I know. I can throw a bag of marshmallows, like, 20 feet. So his, his second law... Isaac Newton, had to do with um, the rate of change in momentum, and we don't need to talk about that one. He also had a third law that says every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So if you hit one car with another car, they're both going to get crunched, right? We got to experience that in my family this year, so that was really fun. So this brings me to this idea of entropy. Entropy, in a nutshell, and again, science teachers, please forgive me. In a nutshell, entropy is just a gradual decline toward disorder. And everything that physically exists is subject to this principle. Like, when something exists it will not, on its own, get more ordered. It will not get better. 
on its own, it will tend toward disorder. Okay? So, our bag of marshmallows, back to that again. This bag of marshmallows will tend toward disorder. If I leave this, let's say it's open now. If I leave this on my desk, it's going to get like, they're not going to be soft and fluffy. They're going to get stale and hard, which I actually like them that way. Um, so I have been known to do that from time to time. Somebody saw this, like I took a picture of my desk the other day, it was just a mess, and, and somebody said, are you just eating a bag of marshmallows on your desk? Like that would be a totally kind of normal thing to do. And I said, nope, but in the subtext of my mind was not this time. Um, so it's going to tend to not get fresher, it's going to tend to get stale. It's probably going to tend to get knocked around and some of them are going to fall on the floor. So I'm going to do something here, and I promise I'll fix it later, okay? Because I want you to see something. When I threw this bag to Tyler, everything stayed nice and together because there was the force of the bag keeping everything nice and together. But if I throw it now, oh, look at the disorder. I just wasted a complete bag of marshmallows. I can't believe I did that. They're still fresh. If you guys want those, I wouldn't eat them off the floor. Um, I do promise I will clean those up. So, try not to step on them. I should have thrown them toward the seats and not in the row. Don't step on those when you leave, okay? Well, I guess you can, but I wouldn't. So, you can see, without the force of the bag disorder. There was no way Tyler was catching all of those marshmallows, right? If we had him in the bag, he could catch them all at once. That's awesome. But entropy says that unless we have that force, it's going to tend toward chaos. Why am I talking about marshmallows and entropy and all of this? Because I think we can apply this same physical principle to people. What if we could apply these rules to groups of people? What if, what if these rules apply to church? Because the church is a group of people, right? A very special group of people. A group of people that's unlike any other group of people on the planet. But we are still, a, I mean, look around. This is, this is people, and we're in a group. And I think there are some similar, similar principles at work that I want to talk about a little bit. Because I think if we can get a grip on this, we can figure out how do we avoid the chaos that unless some force acts on us, we are prone to. Because not only do physical objects tend toward disorder, so do so do people, don't we? My life will tend toward disorder unless something comes into my life to create order. So how do we bring order kind of next level? Is this even possible? Could we bring order out of chaos? 
I think, I think we can. But we have to avoid the mistake that so many in our culture are prone to, and this is not new, but it's a mistake of this idea that just let everybody do whatever they think is right. If you read through the book of Judges sometime, none of us would want to live in that time. It was a lawless time. It was a time when several times through there, this phrase appears, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. See, it kind of sounds like that Jiminy Cricket, every, just let your conscience be your guide. But if your conscience is warped by sin, that is not a good way to live. Because my conscience and your conscience aren't the same unless they've been reshaped by someone else or something else to be the same. See, when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, chaos ensues, and you end up with marshmallows everywhere. The way John said it last week is that when we worship at the altar of self, chaos will follow. And that is so true. We see it in the book of Judges. We see it in the world around us today. And we can see it in the church in Ephesus where Timothy was. But entropy, I think, can be overcome by godly leadership. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. Um, In 1 Timothy 3, in verse 15, well, 14 and 15, Paul said that I'm writing these things to show you now, even though I hope to be with you soon, so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people must conduct themselves in the household of God. This is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and foundation of the truth. So Timothy was living in a place, working in a church that was in in a little bit of chaos, in, in a lot of chaos, really. It was a place where people were just kind of doing what they wanted. It's, it sounds like everybody's kind of grasping for positions of power. And certain people in the community and within the community of the church were, were trying to place themselves over and above other people in the church, grabbing for every bit of power that they could and, and holding on to that prestige that they thought came with that power. And it was making a mess. And so Paul writes this letter to Timothy to help him know how to set things in order. They were being overtaken by entropy. They were falling into chaos. And Paul writes this letter to Timothy to help him know how the people should behave in the church, essentially in order to avoid and get out of the chaos, to make something else out of their situation than what they were in. And so starting in verse 1 of 1 Timothy 3, this is a trustworthy saying. If someone aspires to be a church leader, he desires an honorable position or an honorable task. That one verse As I dug into this chapter, that one verse contains more in it than we could talk about over weeks. And so I want to kind of scratch the surface here. 
But basically, that, that's 10 Greek words that Paul wrote to Timothy in that verse that say so much. These, these trust, trusty, faithful words. If someone aspires to be a church leader, he desires an honorable position. It's interesting the, the word choices that Paul makes. And I know I already went kind of pseudo-science nerd, and I don't want to do that again. I also don't want to go pseudo-Greek nerd because I'm really bad at that. But the Greek words that Paul chooses here are so packed with meaning that I, I just want to stop at this verse for a minute and talk about a couple things. If someone aspires to be a church leader, he desires an honorable task. In our church, in our system, we have leaders that we call elders. All of these men have been nominated by you, by people from the church, and they've been asked, are you interested? Would you like to serve as an elder? None of these men see this as a position of power. None of these men seek to lord it over the rest of the church. I'm an elder, and so you have to listen to what I say. It's a position of service. It's a noble task. Some of them would be hesitant to use the word aspire. Because maybe they didn't think about it until someone said, I see leadership in you. Would you consider being an elder? Sometimes I think we, we are hesitant to aspire because we get position confused with task. In the church, leadership isn't so much about position. It's about the honorable task of serving. Oversight in the church looks different than oversight pretty much anywhere else. There's more of a shepherding component, watching over and taking care of the flock that our elders take very seriously. But it's that that stretching out for, that reaching for, aspiring, that sometimes we have a problem with. And they had a problem with it in the church in Ephesus as well. Because they were reaching out for and grabbing for positions of power instead of opportunities to serve. They were reaching out for the next step above someone else instead of reaching out to help someone take their next step. One of the words that he uses in here is kalu. And I know I'm saying that wrong. I apologize. But it has this idea of of beauty, of good, pure, honorable, It's a beautiful task. It's an honorable task. When someone steps forward to say, 
I see the chaos, and I'm going to allow God to work through me to bring beauty and order out of that chaos, because that's what God does. He takes our messes on a personal level and on a corporate level, on a global level. He makes beauty out of chaos. And he does that through our leaders when they desire to serve. Not when they desire power, not when they desire to tell people what to do, when they desire to serve. And that's what our leaders here at Westway do. They're seeking honorable work. But our aspiration has to always be couched and incubated in humility, I think. In Philippians 2, Paul wrote um, that your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who gave up everything. He had all the power He held in his hand every scrap of authority that anyone could ever aspire to. And he set it aside so that he could rescue us, so that he could become one of us and save us. So in verse 2, Paul writes, So a church leader must be a man whose life is above reproach. He must be faithful to his wife, He must exercise self-control, live wisely, and have a good reputation. He must enjoy having guests in his home, and he must be able to teach. He must not be a heavy drinker or violent. He must be gentle, not quarrelsome, and not love money. He must manage his own family well, having children who respect and obey him. For if a man can't manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? A church leader must not be a new believer because he might become proud and the devil would cause him to fall. Also, people outside the church must speak well of him so that he'll not be disgraced and fall into the devil's trap. Doesn't that just sound like the kind of person that you'd like to be around? Sometimes we see this list of requirements for elders and we, we kind of imagine that as this high bar that the elders have to attain to that's far beyond what us normal people could ever do. It's not. That, that's just the kind of person that you would like to be around. It's the kind of person that you would like to follow, that you would be willing to follow. It's the kind of person that Jesus was. There's... 
there's not really anything high and lofty and unattainable in that, is there? In the same way, deacons must be well-respected and have integrity. They must not be heavy drinkers or dishonest with money. They must be committed to the mystery of the faith, now revealed, and must live with a clear conscience. Before they are appointed as deacons, let them be closely examined. If they pass the test, then let them serve as deacons. Again, this isn't a high and lofty thing that only certain people could possibly qualify for. In many churches today, um, and in a lot of churches where I grew up, you had the elders who served as leaders, and then you had the deacons as another group. And we kind of, we came to model our church governing a little bit after our own nation where we had separate branches of government, kind of a system of checks and balances. And it seemed wise at the time when churches were were reforming this way. Um, We don't want this small handful telling people every, like, just having their way. So we're going to have another body that can act as a counterbalance. Um, I'm thankful that at Westway, the people who serve as deacons aren't trying to buck against the people that serve as elders. I'm thankful that pastors and elders and deacons aren't so concerned with position as they are with what are we doing to accomplish the mission of Christ together? How can all of us participate in what God is doing here? Paul continues, he says, in the same way their wives must be respected and must not slander others. They must exercise self-control and be faithful in everything they do. One note, I guess, that, that word, their wives, just so some of you maybe, well, I'm not a deacon's wife, I'm not an elder's wife, so I, that's not for me. Um, the word there is actually just the word for woman. Uh, a lot of modern translations have made it their wives. Uh, if you look at a lot of the older translations, it just says women. And so ladies here today, uh, you're not off the hook. Um, although I would say it's, again, not a really high bar. You have to be respected, not slander others, self-controlled, faithful in everything you do. Isn't that the kind of person you want to be anyway? A deacon must be faithful to his wife, and he must manage his children and his household well. Those who do well as deacons will be rewarded with respect from others and will have increased confidence in their faith in Christ Jesus. So I, as I read through this, you know, there's description of elders, deacons, wives maybe, maybe just women in general. And this question comes to mind, like, a lot of you are, are not elders. A lot of us will never be elders. Maybe someday we will, someday we won't. If that's something you aspire to, 
that's a good thing. If it's not something that God has pressed into you, that's not a bad thing. In another place, Paul says, not many of you should aspire to be teachers. Uh, And kind of a counter, if God calls you to lead, then you should lead. But you should lead in a selfless, you should lead in a God-honoring, Christ-like way. But maybe you feel like, I'm not going to lead. I don't need to lead. I have no desire to lead. I'm just fine just where I am. And again, I want to emphasize, this is not about position. This is about serving. So how is it that God has called you to serve? Because I'll be really honest, showing up here on Sunday and sitting in a chair is not how God has called you to serve. I'm glad you're here. We love having you here. But we also don't want to just be here. We have work to do in our community. We have a community full of people who have no clue how deeply they are loved by Christ. And no one else is going to tell them if we don't. And so how do we do that together? How do we rescue them from the entropy that sin causes in their own lives? How can you participate in God's efforts to bring order and beauty to our world and to our relationships? Well, again, if you remember at the beginning, I I read these two verses. I'm writing these things to you now, even though I hope to be with you soon, so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people must conduct themselves in the household of God. This is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and foundation of the truth. There are four things that he points out there that I want to touch on that really answer that question for us. How can we participate in what God is doing to bring order and to bring beauty into the chaos that surrounds us? We have to think of ourselves as the household of God. This this loving band of brothers that he has brought together. In the first century, the household necessarily wasn't just mom, dad, and 2.5 kids. The household would have included your household servants. It would have included extended family. It might include, at any given moment, visitors who had come from another place. We have to think of ourselves as a household of God. God has brought us all together and set us on his mission together. This fellowship, this band of brothers. We also need to think of ourselves as his assembly. I know I didn't say that word as I read the English translation, but again, that That is the word that Paul used. Those who are called out. We've answered the call to be his. When I answered the call to be his with you, 
That means I stop listening to the call to be mine. And I set myself aside. I set my pride aside. I set whatever I think I have the right to hold on to aside the way that Jesus did. And in humility, I become whatever God needs me to be and asks me to be and shapes me to be. Paul also calls us a pillar and a foundation of truth. Now, when we think of a pillar, usually we think of a column that's holding up the roof or something. In Ephesus specifically, with the temple of Artemis there, they had these columns that weren't necessarily to hold anything up, except they were to put something on display. There would be like a statue or some piece of art or some idol on top of a pillar. And they made their pillars very ornate to draw attention. Like these were crusted with jewels and inlaid with gold. And it was all about bringing attention to whatever we set on the pillar. And Paul calls the church a pillar of truth. So our, our job as the church, whether you're a leader or not a leader or ever will be a leader, One of the ways that you can participate in God bringing order and beauty into the chaos that we live in is to bring attention to his truth. And finally, Paul said foundation. We have to learn to support that truth. Our faith is not a blind, like, check your brains at the door faith. You don't have to suspend your belief in reality to believe in the reality of God. And I know that our world today really paints that picture. Like, you got to be real dumb to believe that some spaghetti monster in the sky can create something out of nothing, and then that he would die for you, because who are you? And the world wants to say, like, our faith is unintelligent. It just doesn't make any sense but it does make sense. We can objectively observe the world and wonder, how did that happen? Where did this come from? Why is this? Why is there even a world? Some of us are very good at the the intellectual supporting of the faith. But all of us need to know faith is not the opposite of reason. Without question, Paul ends this chapter... This is the great mystery of our faith. Christ was revealed in human body and vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels. He announced to the nations. He was believed in throughout the world and taken to heaven in glory. This is what is revealed about our faith, Paul says. 
We get tripped up on the word mystery because we like Agatha Christie and, well, maybe that's just my wife. We like that kind of mystery, like figure out the unknown. But mystery for Paul was here is what is revealed to us about Christ. Here is what God has shown us about Jesus. He became one of us. He was vindicated by the spirits. The angels saw him. He was announced to the nations and believed in throughout the world and taken to heaven in glory. See that sitting at the right hand of God person who emptied himself and became a man out of humility? Who humbled himself so deeply that he died a criminal's death on the cross? Was then raised back up by his father. Because that's where his father wanted him. And I believe that if we will humble ourselves and allow him to, God will also lift us up to exactly where he wants us to be. See, we overcome entropy when we follow God's lead and when we follow God's leaders. We create beauty out of chaos with God when we allow him to work in our lives to shape us to be exactly what he calls us to be. And so, Father, we want to come to you humbly and ask you to work in our hearts right now. God, would you examine us and reveal to us whatever you have put within us and whatever we have put within ourselves that doesn't belong there. God, I pray that you would give us the courage to make the most out of what you have made us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.